Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a CadSource production. In this episode, I chat with Jed Doughton, the last Tar Heel to wear number 23 before Michael Jordan. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Jed played for the North Carolina Tar Heels from 76 to 79 and was part of four regular season ACC championships during his time in Chapel Hill. Jed is a senior director of development at UNC Charlotte, and Jed also provides virtual assistance to other basketball coaches and individual coaching to players. With a focus on making the first easy pass, Jed brings simplicity and legendary leadership to the podcast. So let's get right into this episode and welcome from North Carolina, number 23, Jed Doughton. So you've been good? I've been pretty busy. Crazy it is. My full-time career, I work up at UNC Charlotte. I had up there a major gift fundraising team on the academics of the university. So we've all been working remotely since the middle of March. And quite frankly, it's worked out fine. Yeah. Our world is reaching out to people all the time and connecting. It's actually, I think people have been home. They're more receptive to taking calls. It's wild. Yeah. So what are they doing with school right now for the students? Yeah. So right now, the students will begin classes September 7th. Okay. Virtually. Okay. And I believe that's supposed to last. And it's fluid. It changes. I mean, sure. every day something comes out. But as far as on, they're kind of planning about a month later to roll into in-person classes, but I don't really have any confidence that'll happen. Yeah. They just make plans and have to adjust every day. Yeah. Like everybody else. Yeah. Well, we'll just keep going from here and keep this conversation rolling. That's what this is all about. Because it's interesting once you bring that up and all around the country, we're seeing institutions and conferences the Big Ten mm-hmm. Conference, as an example, and the Pac-12 making their decisions. You got some conferences in the Southeast, SEC, ACC, even Big 12, you know, going to carry on as far as football is concerned. And then you're seeing different things happen with these institutions as we're talking about it today. And then you have the academic side of things. And like you said, there's a lot of pivoting going on. We talk about it just in business. You have to refine. You come up with an idea, you work on it, and then you realize this isn't working or... We have to refine it. We have to adjust it. We have to pivot. Maybe it's something major like we had in March where it's like, well, that was a major pivot. That was a major disruption to everybody's business (laughs) that you really didn't have any control over. Perhaps you had control over how you responded to situations, whether it was your mindset Mm -hmm. or your ability to go virtual and all these types of things, or some companies already were virtual. So it's interesting watching the big, like I don't want to say Titanics, but when you see an institution like a UNC Charlotte or a Big Ten conference, or these are large institutions to turn around something that's been going in a direction that's been going in that direction for many years is very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. How do you see all that? I mean, it's like, we can't sit here and predict, well, what's going to happen? And I'm not even asking that. I'm just curious as to how do you think it's being handled from being inside of the academic world of higher education? 
How do you think they're right. handling it all right now? First of all, let me say, I don't speak for the university. Sure. I'm just being there and watching somewhat pretty close. What's the old phrase, Mike Tyson? You say everybody has a plan until you get yeah. hit in the mouth. Everybody got hit in the mouth in March. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that, at least from our leadership at UNC Charlotte, and we've been in a change too. We've had a chancellor who had been there 15 years, was retiring. And we have a brand new chancellor that showed up a few weeks ago. So I think they've just been spot on. They have been transparent in their communication. Now, I know not everybody's happy. And you can't make everybody happy. But I will tell you, as an employee and working with our alumni base and working with employees on my team, I think the leadership of the university has just done a fabulous job. Athletics, as you talked about it, from the different conferences, they've got their own set of issues. Mm-hmm. bringing players back. I chuckled a little bit. I looked at a picture the other day that showed the basketball court where the team is currently having workouts, things like that, and they had all the chairs spaced out. Yeah. And I just chuckled and said, well, you know, as soon as they get off the chair, they're all cramming in <laughs> on a basketball right? court. Yeah. But that's what they have to do. You have to do the best you can. But yeah, we've been fortunate, UNC Charlotte, to in a transition period that is not easy Yeah, in normal times to have leadership change. So we've had a lot of new deans that have been on board. Some have just come on board. So mm-hmm. I don't know that it could really have been done any better in the world that we've been in from. Well, that's a good feeling to have. And you said... Yeah. The, the transparency and communication. And you see this going on and on a surface level, you hear like these students showed up to school, they tried it, they had a spike in COVID cases, and then they shut it down. Right. And it turned out that a lot of this happened of the day after tuition was due. So people obviously right. take to social media and they're right. freaking out. And like you said, you can't make everybody happy. And perhaps right. on one side of it, they really did try their best. And then perhaps on the other side of it, they really just wanted their money. I'm like, who knows? And there's probably somewhere right. in the right. middle. But that's challenging because then it just brings this uproar and it brings this negative feelings that right. so many people have. Right. That's really hard to handle. And I think you can't make everybody happy if you have transparency in what you're doing and everyone's aware of it. Well, at least you have that. Right. I think as this time we've gone through, We've been home since the middle of March working. But at the same time, I've had time to look at different articles, different books. I've read a book called uh, Radical Candor mm-hmm. uh, by a, a lady by the name of Kim, I think it's Kim Scott. And it's really about communicating and really just being transparent. I've enjoyed reading it. It's also kind of worked with me in regards to working with the people that work with me. But also because of my sports background, I like to relate to you know how coaches talk to players. Mm-hmm. So how leaders talk to the people on their team, whether in business or sports. Yeah, being transparent, being as forthright as possible. Sure, there are times you just, you know not everybody can know everything. Right, and transparency is good most of the time. Yeah, yeah. There's oversharing, of course. And yeah, and if it goes into personal relationships and it's not easy, right? It's not easy to say exactly mm-hmm. how someone feels. And I think we all deal with it at different levels. I mean, it's something I work on a lot. And whether it's within family or you have people at your company and kind of letting them know what's going on or at a large institution like the UNC Charlotte or these different conferences. And you talk a lot about, as it relates to that, people have a tendency to make things complicated. Right. Whether it's a business strategy, whether it's an institution and really like, right. wow, I mean, you can go in so many different directions and we love strategy and it's very important. Mm-hmm. But you talk about in basketball, make the first easy pass. And I want to go right. on that for a while because there's something really special about simplicity. 
And I think that's what mm-hmm. you're getting at here. When did you right. make the first easy pass? Pretty quickly in my career at Chapel Hill, I was a freshman playing with a lot of uh, really, really great talent on the team. I don't remember exactly what I did, but I, I did something where Coach Smith blew the whistle and said, you know, hey, Jed, you've got great talent around you. Just make the first easy pass. And that phrase, he didn't just say it to me. He said it to lots of folks on the team. It was like, make the first easy pass and move. <laughs> move. Don't yeah. stand. And I have found that that applies in business, too. We, we just like alluded to. We overcomplicate things. And if you bring it back, if you stop, I use the phrase sometimes, well, if you need more revenue, you got all these different strategies. Has anybody thought about just picking up the phone and calling your best client, your best customer, and asking them, why do you work with us? Why have you worked with us this long? And then pick up the phone and call that prospect. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to three hours, 10 hours, 30 hours of strategy meeting, pick up the phone, call somebody. Yeah. That's where the business comes from. Yeah. Well, it seems to me then that became almost like your mantra that you lived by it. Like it, you heard it. Yeah. And whether it's, it sounds yeah. like it's sunk in right away. And obviously, you probably continued to hear it where it just stuck with you. And that's really cool because you see these things you hear in sports, like you learn something and then you apply it to things that have nothing to do with sports, right? You could apply right. it to family or apply it to your right. business or next decision that you're right. going to make, make the first easy pass. Or are there some examples where you were like trying to maybe make a decision and you drew back on this? I'm sure there are. And you're just like, yeah. this guy right here looks open. I'm going to send it to him. <laughs> right, right, right. This is a little bit funny. I think it's sometimes... Here's a simple example. This is a long time before GPS were in cars and everything. And you're riding somewhere with your wife and you're lost. <laughs> And of course, I don't know why, but for some reason, males seem to think, we'll figure this out. We'll just keep moving. But basically, I finally just kind of realized, just stop. Just stop and go in the convenience store and (laughs) ask for help. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just ask for help. So that's kind of a silly one. But even from your help, I marvel at all of the books and the businesses. And there's a lot of layers about people in our society and obesity and losing weight. But at the end of the day, you got to eat less and you got to move more. Yeah. And if you'll do those two things, you're going to lose weight. I don't care what food you eat. If you'll eat less than you've been eating and you'll move more than you've been moving, you'll be fine. Yeah. We complicate it by saying, well, you know, I need to, you know, was that 50 calories or was that 53 calories? Right. Who cares? Yeah. You're in the ballpark. Yeah. So. No, I think those are both very good examples. And those examples show like even in the most simplistic things that we do on a daily basis, drive our car mm-hmm. or go for a walk, we can overcomplicate that. Do you have the right app for it? What's the program? I got to do it four days a week. Because <laughs> what happens right. inevitably is it's raining, it's windy, it's cold, you're tired, you have other things to do and you stop and then you get out of the right. habit. And that's the other thing. It's watching Dean Smith over the years and his teams there was habits that they had. John Wooden talked about this. It was the socks, those socks you wore. It was how you tied your... I love the stories about how you tie your shoelaces. (laughs) And the players showed up there and they're like, is this guy crazy? And there was a method to it and it was a habit and you showed up and it was disciplined and you did it this way. And it's no different than make the easy Mm -hmm. pass and it just becomes a habit that you have. And then you can apply it to everything else that you do. And that actually is really difficult to do. Those habits are very hard. I've watched my son even during this quarantine. He was trying to like... You know, he plays soccer. He wants to get in better shape. Right. Well, eat better 
and train more and exercise more and do these things. And if you create right. the habit, next thing you know, you won't pull out a dessert. You won't do these things if you really want it right. that bad. And once he wanted it that bad, it became very easy for him. Beginning wasn't. And then right. you got over that hurdle. Yeah. I need to acknowledge. I haven't done all this right in my life. Right. Again, I've had this knowledge and I don't always make the right decision. And at the end of the day, we get the opportunity to make choices. Now, as a a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, you don't get to make as many choices. You know, you're limited in the amount of choices you can make. Yeah. But if you really want to get good at something, you got to work at it. You're not going to get better yeah. sitting on the couch. Yeah. And I think this is one of the great things about sports that I think business struggles with sometimes is that in sports, whether it's a football team, basketball team, you're the tennis coach, whatever, you are working with your players to get better by practicing, practicing what you're going to do. You don't just show up on game day and say, all right, let's go get them. Businesses so much of the time don't spend a lot of time practicing those skills if your job is to meet with people face-to-face and have conversations. I'm not saying you need to have an absolute written-down script, but you ought to be practicing that before you walk into the door. And you only get better again, by playing, but you show you practice and the habits you build, the things you do, whether it's Coach Wooden, Coach Smith, Coach K, you can watch them play a coach over many decades. That's what I always used to marvel about Coach Smith, and now I can marvel about Coach K. Coach Smith started coaching in the 60s, and he finished in the kind of late 90s. They were all 18 to 22-year-old kids, the same age group. But the 1962-year-old 19-year-old was a lot different than the 1997. And the same thing with Coach K, who starts at Duke around 1980. As a leader, you have certain core values and things you believe, but you've got to adapt. But there's certain things you don't adapt to, like working hard. I I guarantee it. If you went to a Duke practice, they're working just as hard today as they were in 1981 or 82. Yeah. Oh, there's so many directions I could go on that one. And I'm going to try and touch on a few different things. You started off with, you haven't always done it right. And I appreciate you saying that because I can be hard on myself. You go to a meeting, you say, or I have a conversation with you and I'll get, oh, I should have asked Jeb that. And maybe that's a small example of it. And you could beat yourself. I remember one time I did a podcast and it was with Cullen Jones, who's a Olympian in Charlotte, North Carolina. And somehow, some way, the recording didn't take. Mm -hmm. And I look back as like, I think that was my error. I screwed that up. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. I beat myself up about it. And I talked to mm-hmm. him about it. And he's like, it's all good. Let's continue the conversation tomorrow. And even if it wasn't all good, right. you are going to make mistakes. And, and I think it's important mm-hmm. then when you talk to people who have these great thoughts like you have, like even you are going to make those mistakes. You're going to know, honey, we're going to make it there. I'm going to find a way to get to where we're going. I don't need any help. And I think that's really important to allow yourself that ability in no different than eating you know what? I had six cookies tonight. I shouldn't have done that. And I fell off the wagon a little bit, but I'm not going to beat myself up and ruin my rest of my week or whatever about it. Right. And then the practice. And there's a couple of things. One, you know, we just recently, one of our guys, John, who you've talked to before had a presentation and, and he practiced mm-hmm. a lot before. I think there was better practice he could have had. And we've talked about it. This is full transparency. But what's mm-hmm. so amazing about it is the feedback that he looked for afterwards. He recorded the presentation He shared it with Mm -hmm. us and says, please, I'm looking to get better at this. I think I made some mistakes here. I could have done this better, but I want to know what you thought. Can you help me out Mm -hmm. with it? That's film study. That's going back and looking at the tape. Carolina just plays Duke. 
And sometimes you just want to throw the film away, right? Like, let's never see that again. But at the same time, you do have to go and look back and look at these examples to get it in your mind to understand it. And I think debriefing, you hear it in the military all the time. They go on a recon mission, they come back, let's debrief, let's talk about that. I'm certain. And there's more ways I want to go with what you were talking about there. But I want to touch on that a little bit of the film study, of the debriefing that you probably went through in the late 70s at Carolina. Yeah. So a couple points, you know, between practicing and playing, you know, there's some people that are very good at practice, but when the lights come on, things are different. You have to be able to take what you can do in practice into the game. And to John's point, when he does the presentation and you can practice it all day long, but when the lights come on, it's a different experience than just practicing in front of your video camera and all that. But that's okay because that's really how you get better is doing what you just described, is asking for that feedback. What surprises people when I tell them this, in my era, Coach Smith, though he spent a lot of time on film work, as a team, we didn't spend a lot of time on film work. His focus with us was to focus on us getting better. When on away games, we didn't even go into the opposing arena, uh, walk through or anything, and for the most part, until the day of the game, you just showed up, you warmed up, and you played. And I think things changed over time. The film study that we did, the film doesn't lie. You know, the film doesn't lie. Yeah. If, if you didn't box a guy out, you could have a discussion. And Coach said, you know, I was watching the film last night, and Jed, you didn't box the guy out. Oh, you know, yeah, Coach, I'm pretty sure I did. I remember that. I right, turned the film on. <laughs> well, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, aren't you? Yeah. I think business doesn't do enough of that Mm -hmm. because that debriefing in the military is so key. I'm not so sure that it's that way in business, or at least I haven't seen it in 30-some years in the business world. And the reason you debrief and what you learn from it, it's not to beat somebody up. It's to get better. It's to say, hey, your example of Cordy wasn't turned on for whatever. Well, if you learn from that, that's not going to be your last podcast. You're going to do thousands, if not millions of them, maybe. And if that's the only one you screw up, that was a great learning experience. You know, that won't... Now, something else will happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it won't be that button. Yeah. Because you got it. that taken care of. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you make mistakes, you learn from it, and you don't necessarily forget about it because you need to have this going back ahead, but you can't dwell on your mistakes. My gosh, you'll just be paralyzed yeah. if you focus on your mistakes. Did you watch because... I'm sure there's players, I mean, yourself, Phil Ford, I mean, they make mistakes and they do consistently. They do the similar thing and it could drive a coach crazy. That's why they go gray so fast, right? Yeah. Did you watch Dean Smith with players that that continue to make mistakes and and how did he handle it? Because you know, you see coaches, you see the Bobby Knights of the world that would use yelling, but they loved playing for these types of coaches. What's been your experience? And maybe it's with other coaches that you that you witnessed or that you were a part of in high school and all that, where you're dealing with truth tellers. Coaches are truth tellers. But sometimes you get like mm-hmm. the Bobby Knight of the world who's like, he's in your face, the type of truth teller. Like, what's your experience with that? Because some people can't manage that. They can't handle that mentally. Right. I didn't have a Bobby Knight type in any of my growing up in coaches. When you're 18, you think somebody who's 25 is pretty old. Yeah. My high school coach had not been out of college very long. He played at Wake Forest. And I knew of him because growing up in Winston-Salem, but he was a very low-key individual. His coaching, 
and voice in practice was almost the same level all the time. Coach Smith, on the other hand, he wasn't a screamer. But Coach Smith, I think Mitch Kupchak, who we were teammates one year, and Mitch was a senior and I was a freshman. I think he's the one who said this. And I think someone had asked him about when Bobby Knight tossed the chair across the court. We still see that thing yeah. you know, 40 years later. Somebody asked Mitch about Coach Smith and how he responded to maybe somebody in a not a good situation. And, and Mitch, I think, line was Coach Smith could throw chairs with his eyes. <laughs> in fact, I recently was having a conversation with a, a former teammate. And we were talking about Coach Smith and reminiscing about how he communicated with us. He also could be very sarcastic. Well, again, wasn't a screamer, but he could cut you pretty deep with words and sometimes that sarcasm. We both chuckled and said that sarcasm that seems to be in a locker room all the time, you know, players getting on each other, you know, you kind of get your know, banner back and forth. Then you go out to the business world and you think you can say those same things and you can't because, yeah. I mean, my wife for years is, you can't say that. I said, I'm just kidding. They yeah. said, no, they don't get that. I yeah. said, well, in the locker room, you know, you got it. <laughs> yeah. You had to learn to do that. But yeah. But Coach Smith wasn't a screamer. How he handled people consistently made the same mistakes. Well, because he recruited so well, he could sit you down. That's the ultimate power of a coach if they decide playing time. You know, it's also in an era, too, where it wasn't a one and done. Mm -hmm. I mean, I played with seven first-round draft picks and Phil Ford being one of them. And then the guy, Walter Davis, played with him for two years. Walter Davis and Phil Ford were back-to-back -back NBA Rookies of the Year. There was a lot of talent there. So you could make a mistake, make mistakes as a freshman, but you weren't discarded. You just kind of kept getting better. And then by the time you're a senior, for many of Coach Smith's years, you saw guys who didn't play much as freshmen and sophomores who were, by the time they were seniors, they were major contributors, if not stars of the team. Yeah. Well, I think it's the, as you look in business, it's hiring well. It's getting the right people yes. so they fit the culture, they yeah. fit the team, and they understand, hey, if you make mistakes, this is what's going to happen. I'm not promising playing time. I don't care what type of recruit you are. If you don't do these things, yep. and that's what it sounds like. And you hear it from a lot of top programs and college athletics that that's the way it is. I mean, it's tough love when you get here. And the ones that recruit well, they fit that system. They fit that culture. And then they grow with them. And that just makes life a lot easier because if you get the wrong one in there, it's harder to get them out. Or maybe there's self-selection at that point. Like They realize they weren't a fit for that program, for that business. And they self-select themselves right. out of it and go somewhere else, which is fine. Right. Yeah. Now you're touching on a point I talk about all the time on business. Try to understand that recruiting and hiring are basically the same thing. Okay. But the best coaches understand how important recruiting is. And I haven't done it, but I think if you go look back at which teams have won most NCAA championships in basketball over the lifetime, it's going to be UCLA. It's going to be Kentucky. It's going to be North Carolina. It's going to be Duke. Indiana's in there somewhere too. And then if you go look at which schools put the most people into the NBA, yeah. it's going to be UCLA. Right. It's there. But those coaches, like, you know, like I said, Coach Smith, Coach K, they know the profile of what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so when they're out recruiting, not only is the athletic side and the physical, you know, I need somebody who's six, seven and got a wingspan of a seven footer. That's wonderful. But there's about three people like that. And business, the hiring process is so key because 
for a lot of different reasons. Once you get somebody on board, it can be very difficult to make a change. They don't always self-select yeah. <laughs> to go elsewhere. So being slow to hire and quick to make a change is the best way to go. But I think in business, if you were to ask hiring managers to outline, well, what's the profile you're looking for? There'll be a three paragraph thing. But at the end of the day, we've complicated that. Hire for talent yeah, and hire for attitude. If you've got the right business, if you've got the right product, you'll be fine. Yeah. But if you don't hire the right people, it's just like on a basketball or football team. If you don't have the right people in that locker room, it can kill a team. Yeah. Well, that just goes right back to what you're saying before. Make the first easy pass and simplify it. We can overcomplicate the whole hiring process and what to do when the person's here and and overthinking it and trying to make them fit. Like maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you recruited the wrong player. And so yeah. how are you going to fix it? It gets into a little bit of, like you talked about before, that was different the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and, and on and on and on. And now we have the one and dones and you look like a Coach K. And he had his players stay for a while. And I remember, I right. actually, the school I went to, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And the school I went to is the school that Christian Leitner went to. Oh. Well, I wasn't a fan of Christian Leitner's at the time. So I, the whole I hate Christian right. Leitner thing that happened on <laughs> right. the 30 right. for 30, is it's wild because that was the time you know I grew up and watched that. But he was there for the four years. Right. He was an incredible talent. And now it's very different. So you had a, a Coach K do that. And now you're going out and getting these players that are there for Marvin Bagley's example. If he's one year, one and done. And it's right. a different season. It's a different growth process. And I think you're right. It's the credit or the, wow, we should really watch coaches like a Dean Smith, like a Coach K, like a lot of these other ones, <laughs> transition how they handle things. Because it's no different as we see in business. It's like, well, one day... What is this social media going to do? That doesn't play. I've been doing it this way for 10 years, for 20 years. I'm not going to go switch and do it this way. I want to stick with print. I want to do mailers and I want to this. Well, things are changing in technology. I mean, the fact that you and I are communicating over a computer, over Zoom and recording this conversation through other technology and just so much happening. The way we even scheduled the meeting was all done. There was, it was all automated. You have to be ready to change because the disruption's yeah. coming, whether it was like a pandemic the weather of competitor, right. software, who knows? Yeah. And so I think sports can sometimes be cliche because you can use sports analogies, but I think you really can learn a lot by watching coaches and players and teams and organizations and just saying, let's just look at these coaches that have done it for different generations. Because not only that, the way you even talk to the players in the locker rooms change, you can't say what you said in oh. the 60s and 70s. No. And I'm sure you've seen it and you hear about it and people get in right. trouble now. I mean, you just can't say certain things anymore. So so many layers to it. And it's just beyond impressive to watch it. And it's really cool to see someone like yourself who was a part of the 70s generation of college basketball. And I've talked to friends of mine mm -hmm. who says that was the heyday of the ACC. That's what they remember. Mm -hmm. That's what they remember about their childhood. Mm -hmm. But it's changed and it's different. And I don't right. imagine... I'm sure you love the game just like you did then, even though you turn it on, it looks very different, right? People are pulling up right. from half court almost and shooting threes. <laughs> they didn't do yeah, that then. Many of my teammates, we laugh and said, well, that'd have been nice to be able to pull up on the break and shoot <laughs> from 30 feet. And you could pull up from 30 feet back in the day. You just had to make it. Yeah, yeah. You weren't allowed to miss six out of 10 and still play, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, th things change. I mean, they say it's the only thing that's constant is change. My wife, we were talking about something. Oh, we're talking about we're going to the beach next week with our kids and grandkids and said something about getting a, a tent for the beach, something like that. And she said, well, last time we did that, I think we bought it at Sears. I said, well, Sears doesn't exist. 
Maybe they're around some way. But I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. you can go through the businesses that fall. We don't need to change. We got this thing, you know, rocking and rolling. And then next thing you know, they're out. So yeah, I actually, probably being one of the older people in the office where I work, I'm enthused. I'm invigorated by the change. I'm not the best at working with technology, but I love that it's there. I think, mm. just like you were saying, that we can have a conversation and you can see me, I can see you, we hear each other, and you're recording this. It's unbelievable. I mean, from somebody who started coming out of school in 1979, you had a phone book. Yeah. People made money selling ads for a phone book that they didn't, <laughs> they just gave it away, gave the book yeah. away because of, you know. Yeah. It's remarkable. Mitch, who's here, and he grew up in North Carolina. So he, yeah. anytime I talk to him, he's bringing up basketball, his son played basketball, and he just loves it. I was told him I was talking to you and he started telling stories about your teams and just the ACC in general and different players and all over the map. And he tells stories of when he started and he's on the insurance side of our business. When he started, yeah. they say he gave him a roll of quarters and he just yeah. could go drive around. And when you got to make a call or you had a pager and you got a page and you pull over on the side of the road and you yeah. call the person that you need to call. And he's still in the business and he had the Blackberry for a while. And he says, I won't. Have, and then he had the iPhone and and I always tell him he's sneaky, technical, yeah. and he can get it done. And it right. nothing's changed. I mean, he continues to right. get out there and go do what he's got to do, and even yeah. if it's at a payphone. <laughs> the one thing about college basketball in that era and t- today, you didn't have every game on TV. It was a big deal when an ACC game was on TV. It was a big deal when the North Carolina Tar Heels would come to Charlotte and play for a weekend tournament. I mean, this is a huge exaggeration, but it was almost like the Beatles came to town. When we would try to get out of the locker room at the old Charlotte Coliseum on Independence, when we would try to leave the locker room, you basically had to take a freshman and say, all right, you're first. You sign every autograph, but don't stop. Because if you stop moving, we'll never get out of here. Yeah. And I don't know that it's not that way. It's probably not because the players are so much more accessible. You see them. You see every single game. But when we came to Charlotte, the games would be sold out and they would just dying to get autographs. Yeah. So when you're talking about the different generations of college basketball, and I want to touch on that too, because I remember late eighties, early nineties, heyday of big East basketball, ACC, incredible games, incredible players. And some were starting to leave early. You still had that, but they were there late. And we talk about Alonzo morning type players. What do you see if today more, because I watch college basketball, the talent levels, insane. You don't know necessarily the players because some of the good ones are gone. Like even this past year, we got shortchanged, obviously, with the season. I think I was looking as like the 10 best players or 10 of the best players that were going to be in the NBA draft weren't even going to be in the NCAA tournament either. Their teams weren't that good. They were playing in Australia. They were injured. And there's so many different factors involved with it. How do you look at it today? And the games just change so much. And three pointers are just, you know, you can watch a game and 23 pointers and taken attempted and the game is nothing now. How do you see it? You know, one of the things that is so different is that, first of all, the money at the NBA level is so big. It is Mm -hmm. life changing money. And it's not that it wasn't big money when I was in school. But it wasn't life-changing money. Quite frankly, some of these guys, it really, with their first contract, if they take care of their money, they really could be set for life. And if they get two contracts, oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to make all those right decisions, but sure. that wasn't the way. So 
So I think that the emphasis in getting to the NBA, it seems to be more important. Everybody, as I coach young kids and I watch AAU tournaments, you know, travel ball, everybody, everybody thinks they're going to be an NBA player. Heck, most of them aren't even going to be a high school player if they're 10 years old. <laughs> right, right, right. You hate to be that radically candor with them, but I, I do have the experience of doing it and saying, you know, hey, just because you're the best player at 10, the odds you're going to be the best player at 18, it's not that great. But right. the business has changed. The business, it's always been a business in college, but it's even bigger there. So when I watch the game, quite frankly, they're shooting threes because it's just math. Yeah. I tell my friends this all the time. I don't believe they're better shooters. I think if we had been allowed to shoot that many threes, I think we could have made 35 to 40% of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you weren't going to do that because the math told you that makes no sense to be a 38% shooter and only get two points when you can throw it inside and have a, a seven footer yeah. who scores at a 50 to 60% uh, clip. So, yeah. Yeah. The analytics change, right? I mean, that's right. It's just worth more. And if we can get enough up, like you said, it took teams to do it. It took teams showing up and to take that many yeah. threes and to see how it played out. And you could still miss two, but once you get hot and hit three, I mean, it just makes a difference. Right. You, you get back in the game so much faster. I mean, right. you, you can be down 10. Yeah. Back when I played, if you were down 10 with three minutes to go, you were just about dead because there was no right. shot clock either. So you right. could really. Take the time. Well, if, isn't, yeah. Isn't that you guys doing uh, the four corners offense? And next thing you know, it's like the game's over. It's over. Watch an NBA game. You know what they're running? Four corners. It was an yeah. offense. The only reason it got to be a stall was because the other team wouldn't come out. If somebody came yeah. out to try to guard Phil Ford in a full half court game, they were going to get abused because you yeah. couldn't stop him. He'd blow right by you. Yeah. And it really was an offense. And so I, I've watched more NBA in the last. I can't believe I'm watching NBA and, and Walt Disney, but right. uh, they're spreading the court yeah. and giving the ball to the guy and say, go. Isolation. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is isolation. Yeah. And that's really yeah. what four corners was to take your best ball handler yeah, and get the court open, let him penetrate. Yeah. And if somebody helped out, dish it yeah. off. Well, they can shoot from many of the corners now, right? It's <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's we always an open shot to be had. Yeah. We, we were in four corners was not, to shoot an outside jumper. It was to get right. a layup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's different now. It's uh, Well, yeah. you see it even when Shaq comes into the league and you know everything's inside out. Well, now it's like a Steph Curry. It's outside in. I mean, you just open up right. the floor so much. I mean, it's the amount of... Like, obviously, watch a lot of soccer. My son plays it and you see the best teams out there use the entire field or the pitch, right? And yeah. they're like Basically, almost yeah. out of bounds. And it's to defend that space like you were talking about the four corners just in basketball the more space you can use it just opens things up and yeah. my goodness and it's it's free-flowing i mean it's all when they get into it it's a lot of fun especially the college basketball when they're moving up and down i love college football too and but same thing happened in college football when i was yep. growing up it was fullback and a tailback and <laughs> yeah, everybody phone booth. on the line you, <laughs> you handed it off yeah and you just everybody and then all of a sudden i don't know who started it but it started spreading everybody out yeah because space yeah. Truthfully, these cornerbacks in the NFL, Ugh. they got to be the greatest athletes in the world. Yeah. And mindset. Yeah. Because you're going to get beat. You're going to get beat, but the really good ones don't get beat that much. Yeah. Yeah. Because they are just so talented and they're very smart. You know, they, they've learned how to play. 
But yeah. the offensive people figured out, said, spread it out. I'm just yeah. always surprised, and quite frankly, that even in basketball, out-of-bounds plays. I don't know why we don't spread the court. But anyway, yeah, no, well, I mean, it's spot on. I mean, you, cause you look back and you've mentioned like an Ohio state, you have like a Woody Hayes and three yards yeah. and a cloud of dust. And, and that was yeah. it. And you still implement yeah. strategies and ideas in that philosophy in many ways when they do run the ball, they're just trying to get the numbers and you have like a right. Ryan day now and you're using players all over the field. And it's like, and then you throw the talent, the recruiting on top of it. How do you defend yep. like a Clemson and Ohio state and Alabama? they can distribute the ball and have players everywhere. I'm like, I just watch them. Like, right. I don't see how you defend it. I really don't. And like you said, it, it applies itself to all these soccer, basketball, and, and it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun to watch. There's a lot of scoring. And it's just, again, it's just continues to evolve. And I don't want to start here. You guys had, when you were at Carolina, you mentioned, we talked about Phil Ford. You had great mm-hmm. teams like every year. I think mm-hmm. you won, right. I believe you won the ACC regular season championship every single year you were there, if I'm not mistaken, and won all the ACC years, tournament. Yeah two of those years and had a good, great run, obviously in 77, right? It's the championship game, but you have ups and downs because 77, you Mm -hmm. win it, but things don't end perhaps the way you want it to end. So how are you overcoming all of these things? And it continued to happen throughout your career there where you have, and that's sports, right? I mean, you think you have the best year and that's not the year you win it or anyway, that's a lot to deal with four years of all these ups and downs on a team with huge expectations. I mean, what was right. it like? Like you said, it's like the Beatles are in town and then you have to right. deal with all of that internally. Obviously with it, a legendary coach certainly helps and some great talent certainly helps, but. Well, I would say that the best thing that we didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have social media. Okay. So we didn't have to deal with that, mm-hmm. but you're right. We had a lot of uh, ups and downs the 77 team that lost to Marquette, I was a sophomore. We never won an NCAA game my next two years. It wasn't a one versus 16. Basically, it was right. kind of the first round game was really like a second round game. Yep. So 78, we lost to San Francisco, who had Bill Cartwright in a first round NCAA game out in Phoenix. And the reason we're not there is because we lost in the ACC tournament. We didn't win it. Duke ended up winning it. And then in 79, we win the ACC tournament. And we'd already played Duke four times. <laughs> we played Duke four times between regular season. We had a big four tournament. We played them in the finals of the ACC tournament. And they put us both in the Eastern Regionals to play <laughs> in Raleigh. And we both got beat. We got <laughs> beat by Penn. Yeah. And think about social media in 1979. We lose to Penn, who ended up going to the Final yeah. Four, believe it or not. But we didn't have that. And so we had some, probably more of a bubble. You had some students from time to time who might say something snide to you, but not very often. They wouldn't say yeah. it to your face. Yeah. They might to me because I wasn't a big guy, but uh, they weren't going <laughs> yeah. to walk up to Michael Korn, who was an All American, six, seven, six, eight, and you know, give him a lip. But in today's world, they can get on social media and just rip somebody. And yeah. that's what I worry about the kids that pay attention to that. Yeah. I worry about their, you know, their mental. Yeah. Because it's brutal. It's, you can't get away from it. Well, I think that's big of you too, to say like, you're dealing with different things, right? And yeah, the UVA is a great example. I mean, losing how they lost and then coming back. And, right. Right. That's incredible because they were just the butt of every single joke that you can imagine. And to have that, to persevere. Yeah, I would have people say to me later on 
would have this conversation, maybe in the early age. They said, man, how, how did y'all lose? I mean, you had all these great teams. And I said, the thing everybody forgets, these are 18 to 22-year-old kids. They have yeah. girlfriends. They have family issues. Some days they're not. Just like any other 18 to 22-year-old, they just happen to be bigger and faster than most 18, 22-year-olds. But the things that go on in their life, yeah. are, they're not immune to that. So when they step onto the court, well, you don't know if the girlfriend just an hour before just said, you know what, I'm done with you. <laughs> Maybe a, a parent gets sick or, you know, all those things that sure. go on. So I've always tried to, after being on the inside and seeing that, I have a lot more empathy toward teams when they get beat and say, you know what, you just don't know what's going on. Be yeah. careful about what you're saying and what you think happens. Not sure. quite as always as obvious as you think. Well, you it, yeah, and that's weird because winning and losing, especially today, you know, you see the NBA, the ring chasing, they call it. Right. So much is in college sports, it's so much about the championship and the social media. Right. They didn't win. They never won. And obviously, you want to win. You want the title. You want all the different accolades right. that come with it. And you work for those things. And then sometimes it just doesn't work out for whatever reason. Right. You know, in college basketball is as cruel a sport as there can be. I mean, you could have the best team, right. you could go undefeated, right? And you could lose Kentucky, right? It seems like that. It yeah. just yeah. got beat on a day. And and then they're like, well, we're not going to remember that team. And it's just interesting. And I've heard players and coaches and that played at high levels like yourself and say, Man, we would love to have won, but it didn't work out. That doesn't take away the experience. You know, we talked right. about enjoy the journey. And you look yeah. back, there's incredible Ted Williams, a Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, I'm from Buffalo, New York, Jim Kelly, that whole team, they never won. Right. They wouldn't look back and say that they were a failure and they wouldn't probably mm. trade it for anything. And you could speak to that because you were on some mm. of these teams like that 77 team that probably right. could have won right. it all, obviously could have won it all. Right. You were right there. But right. I don't know. I mean, you tell me like what those feelings are when you look back at it, knowing like could have won it all. You do kind of shake your head. I don't, again, I think when you're in the middle of it, you don't appreciate it. I, I mean, I do remember our Final Four experience in 77. It was in Atlanta. And again, I should preface my story. This is the way I remember it. And, you know, if you go back <laughs> yeah. and look it up, it may be the, But what I recall was Saturday, the two semifinal games, we were the second game of the day. And we were going to play Nevada, Las Vegas that had. I mean, like it wasn't a three-point shot, but by golly, they played like it. They flew up yeah. and down the court. But what I remember so much was being in the hotel room when the first game started, and you're watching it on TV, and you're going, "Wow, this is big. This is really something." Because it's the the whole production. Mm -hmm. We'd laugh at it today if you were oh, watching sure. that film. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, I was like, "Wow, this is really big." And then, Eric, what I really recall is when we walked and we were standing in a hotel right by the arena, when we walked into the arena and the game was going on, felt like any other game. The height that TV brought it, and I remember thinking, wow, this, this feels like any other game. Now, it wasn't just any other game, but I don't think that any of us really, really totally understood how your life story at least huh. part of your life story would change by being a part of a national championship team. Yeah. I laugh sometimes and you know what coach Williams has done in the time he's been back at that Chapel Hill. As you described, I was on teams that won four ACC regular season championships, won two ACC tournaments. ACC tournament was a huge deal. Played with seven first team All-Americans, four guys who played on the Olympic team. 
our teams are irrelevant based on the success that Coach Williams has had, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. We don't even get discussed mm-hmm. because, first of all, nobody cares about an ACC regular season championship anymore. Anymore. The right. only thing people care about is the NCAA tournament. Right. The NCAA tournament, believe it or not, was almost like gravy back yeah. then. If you won the ACC yeah. tournament, yeah. man, you walk pretty proud for yeah. all year long. Yeah. When I got to North Carolina, I saw that because I remember working right. at my first company and you had state fans and Wake fans and Carolina fans and oh, yeah. you name it. And that was it. And we knew it. And I still see it because I told you before, like what Mitch would talk about and the stories that they would have. And Matt Doherty was on the podcast and some people heard that and they were, right. it brought back memories and they wanted to talk about those types of stories. And mm-hmm. it is different. And I think I'm hearing you say, you hear a lot of people say, you just enjoyed competing. You enjoyed the opportunity yeah. to be out there. And of course right. you would want to win it. Of course, a Charles Barkley would want to win the NBA championship. But you know what? There's a guy wearing number 23 out there at this around the same time, around the same era that just right. maybe ended up just being there. And I mean, I think that right. leads me to my question of like, why did you let Michael Jordan wear number 23, which is your number? Because <laughs> <laughs> you were the last well, one uh, to wear 23, right? Not his I number, was. your number too. <laughs> I think he pretty much made it his number. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, I laughed. I used to tell people when Michael got my uniform, I asked him, hey, Michael, how'd that feel? He said, oh, man, it, it was great. I put the shirt on, Jed, it really felt good. He said, but when I pulled those pants up, the splinters about killed me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I say that to kids, they think of splinters. What, what are splinters? Well, yeah. it was, yeah. Though we didn't really sit on a wooden bench, but uh, I guess it was in April when ESPN did the, the last dance. It was amazing the number of people that wanted to talk to me about wearing a jersey yeah. You've done a good job looking at our team stats. I hope you haven't spent much time looking at my individual statistics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good Carolina guy. I think, think that Michael and I, we ought to combine our stats and uh, then we just talk about it that way. You know, yeah. He only went to one Final Four. I only went to one Final Four. He just happened go. to win his. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's obviously a part of Tar Heel history. I mean, there's so much of it. I mean, the stuff that you've already talked right. about and the wins that you had and the success that you had at Carolina. And then a few years later, Michael Jordan shows up and really yeah. changes basketball. And, yeah. and it's still being talked about today and changing you know, how people even approach life after basketball. I mean, there's just so much that right. is being discussed and is talked about, like you said, on the last dance. And just memories people have and compared to every day, you can't watch LeBron anymore without someone wanting to have a conversation about who's the best basketball player ever. Right. I think Jordan talks about it a lot. It's like, well, it's different generations. You know, I think people can make up their own mind and they can have their own conversations. And that's a lot of fun, but he was something special though. And the team he was on. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It sounds, he only won one national championship and he had some unbelievable talent. Yeah. Especially I guess his junior year. I heard early on, because I guess his, It's like I graduated in the spring of 79, and he showed up in the fall of 81. So a lot of the guys that I played with that were still playing in the NBA, they'd all come back to Chapel Hill. And I had some teammates that also played some in Europe. And I remember getting a phone call from one of my teammates, and they said, man, you're you're not going to believe this guy. And I remember kind of rolling my eyes on the phone going, you know, we've heard these stories about freshmen come in and and they look really good in pickup games, but when practice starts, you got to do it Coach Smith's way. Things yeah. aren't quite. He said, "No, no, no, you don't understand." He said, "Nobody wants to guard him in a pickup game." I said, "What are you talking about?" Walter Davis doesn't want to guard 
Michael Jordan, or I guess they called him Mike back then, Dudley Bradley, who was a star of my class. Dudley Bradley was a 10-year pro who was one of the best defensive players in the history of the, the game, especially at Carolina, but in, in college basketball. He, he played the NBA because he could play defense. And he said, no, Jed. He said, I'm telling you, you know how you pick teams. And, and then all of a sudden, everybody starts saying, okay, I got so-and-so. He said, it looks like a square dance. Guys are grabbing each other. <laughs> Don't go guard that guy. He's got the quickest first step you've ever seen. He just blows by people. And then he just, I'd heard those stories, but I will tell you that. And then I also heard about his, his drive. Some of the guys used to say, quite frankly, that he was difficult to be around because it, he never let up in anything. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things you saw in the last dance was his drive to succeed just never got turned off. Never yeah. got turned off. Yeah. Well, you saw it play out with different teams that they had. I, when I think I talked to Matt Doherty about it, you go back to that Portland Trailblazers NBA final series in game six, and they're losing by 19. And he's not even on the court at this time. But his right. guys were so ready for the moment because it had been years, obviously, in the making at that point. But right. they didn't flinch because he had pushed them right. so hard. And like you said, you got to see that in the right. last dance. But I remember that. I was leaving the country right. the next day. I was like, I wanted to see them win it that night. And it's, it right. seemed like it was over. And they made on the run and Jordan comes in and finishes it off. But when was the first time you got to see him play? Do you remember that? Well, I'm sure that I saw him play in Chapel Hill his freshman year. I don't recall the game, but I was at New Orleans for the championship game. That's the memory so much. And what I tell people is this. If you go back and watch the film of the game, of course, he hits the big shot. But I want to say there's about two minutes left in the game. He takes the ball pretty far out on the left-hand side, and he drives to the basket, and he lays it up over Patrick Ewing. I mean, when I say lays it up over, it's almost the top of the backboard. He kisses it off the glass, and it drops in. And I remember turning to my wife, who was there with me, and I said, whoa, that might be the greatest shot I've ever seen. And nobody ever talks about it. But I will tell you, if you ever get a chance to see the game again, fast forward, get to that last two to three minute, watch him go to the basket. And it's left-handed off yeah. the glass. And yeah. he is a true freshman yeah. over Patrick Ewing. Over Patrick Ewing, yeah. I remember that game distinctly, but I don't recall. Yeah, you know, Like I said, I'm pretty sure. Because I, I was still going to games back then, but I don't really. Yeah, but you have those moments. You have like things when he does a play like that, that just blows you away and something special is going on here. Oh, yeah. As I said, it didn't take long for anybody to know he was special. But yeah. you know what? What I would say is the most special thing about him was his drive. There were probably other people who had the athletic ability that he had. I mean, as crazy as that makes sense, I mean, that weren't a lot. Right. But nobody could match that drive. And you can't teach it. You can learn how to do a left hand layup and you can learn how to do a step back jumper. You can't teach that drive. I'm telling you, I've coached kids for years and everybody says, if Billy would just play harder, I said, Billy ain't going to play hard. If Billy wanted to play hard, he'd be playing hard. It's yeah. not the speech. You can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Guys have it or they don't. It's interesting too, because you see it in business where, I can try to motivate you. I could try to push you. And, and maybe there's little bits here and there, but yeah, it's important to realize as early as you can. If you're having to motivate people, and, I, and I'll tell you this too, I've been telling the story for years. I can't remember one pregame talk Coach Smith ever gave. He was not a motivator. It was about being prepared. It was about you've done your work, you are prepared, 
Now, let's go. And that doesn't mean he wasn't competitive. That doesn't mean that, but it was never a rah-rah speech. And I think in business, the same thing. If you're having to motivate your people to do their job, it's got to be hard. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you there isn't some way to pick somebody up who's had a tough time and give them a good, hey, you're all right. Come on, let's go. You can remind them how good they are. That's yeah. one thing. Yeah. And I think that's what Coach Smith was so good about was his enthusiasm and his encouragement came at the times when you're kind of getting your tail kicked. He said, yeah. no, 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 we're okay. We used to laugh. Yeah. He'd say, we're right where we want to be. Said, no, <laughs> we can't possibly be right where we want to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah. yeah, it's like you have to have some motivation in there in the little parts, but it's not the overarching. It's not the thing that's going right. to, you said, drive you. That's all there. Right. It's the little pieces maybe of motivation that you need or you need to give your teammate or whatever that is. But overarching is you're ready for this moment. You've prepared for this moment. You've put in the right. hard, you use the word hard work before. Sometimes they say, well, how do you do it? And I've talked to enough people that have been around longer than I have. And they say, nothing beats hard work. Yeah. It's sometimes it's that simple. It's that's the easy pass. Just work hard. That's the, it's exactly right. <laughs> I say to people all the time, somebody that I work with over the years, they may come to me and say, I really didn't have a good quarter. I didn't have a good month. I say, well, tell me about it. No wonder you had a bad quarter. You only called 10 people. Yeah. How, how were you expecting a good quarter? Doesn't guarantee success if you call more people or if you do more of, of what you were supposed to be doing. But if you were going to count on, I'm going to, do my job and I'm going to have a hundred percent success. You got to battle through the things that when it doesn't go right, when you, yeah. you might want to make the first easy pass, but sometimes that first easy pass gets picked off yeah. or sometimes that you what you thought was an easy pass wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And so you got to have the intestinal fortitude to come back. What do you do when things are tough? Everybody's yeah. great when things their locker rooms yeah. are great when everybody's winning. What's the locker yeah. room like when you just got your tail handed to you? Yeah. Well, Jed, this has been amazing. I could talk for hours with it. You have a website. You have ways people get a hold of you. What is the best way to get a hold of you? I've kind of put some things together. FirstEasyPass.com. It really has a lot of content in regards to try to help coaches and players. It has some of the Carolina stories and things like that. So you can, you can certainly reach me through that website. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. And also just my personal email, Jed.Doughton at gmail happy to respond if anybody wants to reach out but i'm i'm around i'm on twitter some too and i'm facebook i'm not as uh, engaged as i probably need to be but i'm out there if you look you can find me so i've appreciated the time too this has been great yeah this has been excellent and i mean just stories of hard work stories of the tar heels and acc basketball <laughs> and number 23 and just pivoting and dealing with what we're dealing with right now These are important conversations. I appreciate your time and your energy and those stories. So thank you. You're welcome. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sportsypreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. (laughs) 